you will open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23 will begin in just a moment in verse 50. We're going to read into chapter 24 and read through verse 12. Again, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 will begin in just a moment in verse 50. While you are turning, let me say it is good to be back with you. Uh, we had an unexpected and brief illness that kept us out for a uh, Sunday, and then uh, we went to a family wedding. We were able to kind of join that with a couple of extra days off and do some travel last week. It really uh, was kind of our plan to get to slip in here right at the last minute last Sunday morning, and if you have flown anywhere in the last year, uh, you are at the mercy of uh, the airlines and other various entities, and so uh, in about an hour, all of that kind of blew up and came came to nothing. Uh, but uh, I'm always thankful and uh, pleased uh, when uh, these young men that work uh, with me as pastors of this church uh, step into this pulpit. Uh, they are as convinced and committed uh, to the truthfulness, to the power, to the the priority of preaching that, that I am, they do it uh, with great excellence. Uh, so many of you this week have spoken to me and uh, pointed out uh, how much you enjoyed uh, the messages that they preached. And so I'm appreciative of them. And uh, one of the things that I say fairly often, uh, it is my conviction uh, that there are a great many of entities out there that would call themselves churches that do not have one man uh, that will stand and preach the truth of the Word of God, and we are blessed with many here at North Clay that will stand and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord. And so uh, uh, thank you, uh, Josh and Drew, uh, for doing this. Of course, uh, Brad uh, preaches as well and will be doing that uh, soon. And so uh, I am very thankful and very appreciative and uh, admire uh, the work that you do. Again, Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. We have a, a bit of a saying, a bit of a cliche that's endured. You're probably familiar. Don't put your eggs in one basket. Kind of the upshot, the meaning is that you're to diversify or spread your risk around. Certainly if you're in business or you're investing for the future, uh, that is solid, that is wise, that is good counsel. But I want to say to you today that if you are a believer, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have uh, the hope that your sins are forgiven, that you have the certain hope of heaven, then you have indeed put your eggs in one basket. And that basket is the reality that on a Sunday morning long ago, that when the tomb in which our Lord Jesus was placed at the end of the day on the preceding Friday was found to be empty, and that the message that these first visitors heard was, He is not here, He has written, risen. I, I say along with the Apostle Paul, if Christ be not raised, we of all men are most miserable. Our faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. I say with the hymn writer, 
We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid and resurrected rock, I take my stand. And let me tell you something. All other ground is far worse. Far, far worse than seeking sand. Read with me, if you will, as we think this morning about the resurrection of Jesus, a past reality that gives to us a future hope. Verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then, they, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told, them, told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed as an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what? had happened. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for the testimony that is sure and certain. It is a testimony to reality, to the truth that our Savior, your Son, has been raised from the dead. And not only has he been raised, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he now rules and reigns, and we await the day of his return. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Give us understanding as to what you have given to us in your word. May you strengthen, may you encourage us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We at times get into discussions about what you might call dichotomies. That is, we might ask a question such as, which is more important, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is more important, the fact that He is God, His deity, or the fact that He is man, His humanity? 
What's more important? The death or the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's more important? His ascension or His return? Now, I'm typically up to some extent for a good discussion, even a bit of debate, a bit of Q&A among brothers and sisters as to uh, things that we're trying to gain understanding on. But these questions, while at some level are good to discuss because they are distinct elements of the realities of the gospel, they're also at times a bit like asking a pilot, which one of the wings to your airplane do you like best? Uh, that is, if you lose one wing, in reality you don't have an airplane. And so we, we really don't want to divorce these things. It is fine to look at them in terms of their differentiation and, and compartments. And uh, Drew did a, a masterful job at looking at the crucifixion last week, at the death of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we come to the text today that defines and details uh, the burial of our Lord. And, and it really serves as a, a bit of a, a, of a hinge that, that we close the door uh, upon uh, the crucifixion. Uh, we survey the realities of his burial. And then we swing wide and we open the door to the glorious realities that the cross and the tomb did not have the final say in regards to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's begin by looking at this description of the burial of our Lord. We find it in those first verses we read, beginning in verse 50 and working uh, through uh, verse 54. And I would say that we may be certain there is certainty regarding the fact that Jesus actually died. And in that death, again, as Drew unpacked so ably, there was the atonement for the sins of those who would believe that the gospel was accomplished, that men and women and boys and girls, the image bearers of God who suffer from the curse, the fall of Adam, have been reconciled to God through the blood of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that death was both necessary and it was certain. And it is a fool's errand and it is a fool's argument to get into this business where Jesus wouldn't, wasn't really dead. I, the nicest thing that I would say to those that would make that argument is, you're an idiot, okay? But other than that, it's fine. But make no mistake about it, those that were charged with the responsibility of carrying out an execution knew what they were doing. And it would have been at cost of their life had they failed in carrying out, in dispatching uh, that duty. And so we can kind of know as a kind of a corollary that when Joseph went to get the body and they handled that body, they were fully aware, they were absolutely certain that the body that they were preparing for its burial no longer had life. The spirit no longer animated that corpse. And so Jesus was appropriately and he was rightly buried. And so verse 50 in introduces us to this man identified as Joseph, one that was from a town that we're not exactly sure where Arimathea is. It was probably somewhere 
fairly close to Jerusalem, but I'm not sure that there's agreement as to where it actually was. That's not an important detail. But we're introduced with a, a certain amount of information that he was from Arimathea, that he was a member of this notorious council that had pronounced the death sentence, that had schemed, had conspired to place Jesus on the cross. That mean, means that he was a prominent man, that he was actually a member of that council, but unlike the other members of that council, he was a good and righteous man. So once again, we, we see Luke engage in the use of, of irony and incongruity. We, we have not had a, a very positive, a very complimentary picture of these religious leaders. In fact, uh, they have been presented largely as immoral scoundrels. And yet, in the midst of that cohort, we find this singular individual, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a part of that council, uh, pro probably being a, a Pharisee, who had not consented to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, probably, he knew what was going on, he knew that it was a railroad job in terms of a court case, and he determined not to attend the proceedings because we at least... Uh, other Gospels give us the evidence that it was a universal decision or a unanimous decision that Jesus be bound over to Pilate, that he ultimately uh, be crucified. And so this man Joseph, who previously it would seem had been a believer slash disciple. You can't separate them. If you're a believer, you're a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're not a believer. If you're not a disciple, don't think of your sins as being forgiven. If you're not a disciple, do not think you have the hope of heaven. Okay? And so this man was a disciple, but, but he had kept it, evidently, a closely guarded secret. Okay? Now, as much as we use the thief on the cross as an apologetic for kind of deathbed conversions and the fact that you don't have to really make a public profession and you don't have to be baptized and all that, it's all well and good. Joseph is not our apologetic for a non-participating Christian, okay? That is not his function and that is not his purpose. And here's the thing. You may be silent for a while, but there will be a point in time when God will ordain, He will create the circumstances, He will sovereignly ordain that you must either stand up or shut up. And so when the moment came, Joseph willingly and most likely at great personal expense, identified himself with the Lord Jesus by going to Pilate to claim that body. And in doing that, he probably lost all standing, all position within uh, those Jewish leaders. And so uh, we don't know a lot about Joseph, at least from the biblical uh, materials, but it's interesting, if you want to Google his name, there is a lot of apocryphal information, a lot of legendary information. And for those of you that uh, uh, like the Indiana Jones series, he's actually alluded to uh, in the, the Last Crusade uh, as uh, the one who uh, held the cup uh, that uh, the blood of Jesus dripped into, and uh, he brought that cup to Britain, I think it was. And uh, if you drink from that cup, you shall have 
eternal life. Now, all of that's fanciful, legendary, uh, mythological, uh, but I was not aware. I, I hadn't really thought of that, but when I, when I read it, and I said, oh, I remember that scene in Indiana Jones. Now, don't go watch vile pagan movies, okay? It's okay for me, but not, not for y'all. Now, so, we don't know a lot of, about him, but we see a glaring, glimmering testimony to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by his willingness to claim the body, to be identified uh, with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one that is described here as looking for the kingdom of God. That, that means he was an old covenant saint. And it's interesting we see at the opening of the life of Jesus, uh, we have the testimonies of Simeon, Simeon and Anna, okay, giving testimony to their faithfulness, to their looking for the kingdom of God. And at the conclusion of Jesus' life, we see this additional uh, testimony of those looking for the kingdom of God. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in explaining and, and in some sense lamenting the unbelief of the Jews and God's sovereign purpose in saving Gentiles and rejecting and hardening Jews there in Romans 9, 10, 11, that notorious and difficult section of Scripture. But he reminds us that indeed there has been and there always will be a remnant of believing Jews, of which evidently Joseph was one of those. And so uh, we see his story, his, his testimony, uh, somewhat as a bookend uh, with Simeon and Anna uh, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're told in, in verses 15 and 53 that in claiming uh, the body, and since he was a wealthy man, we don't know if he took servants with him to the cross. Uh, other gospel accounts, John's account tells us that another Pharisee, Nicodemus, actually accompanied and evidently uh, making the same type of confession, same type of identity uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but they, they go, they, they take the cross down, and they, they wrap it as, as is or as was the, the norm uh, for that, that time. Uh, they wrap him in a, a linen shroud, and they take the body. They place it in, actually in uh, Joseph's uh, tomb, uh, to be buried. And in that, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they fulfill the scripture from Isaiah 53.9 that he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In that he is buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb, dying among the wicked and the impoverished on uh, the cross. And so, uh, Joseph goes, he goes to Pilate, he claims the body, uh, he takes the body, he uh, gives it somewhat of a, uh, a temporary type of preparation uh, for uh, the burial. They take it to the tomb that uh, he had obviously probably bought uh, for his own use when he uh, died. And then we're, we're given some additional details there in beginning in verse 54. It was the day of uh, preparation, that is, it was moving toward the evening on Friday, the day of the crucifixion, and so the, the Sabbath would be beginning uh, soon. And while all of these operations were taking place, these women who had been with Jesus, even from the time uh, in which he was in Galilee, uh, they saw the tomb, uh, they saw the preparations, and so uh, they left 
uh, to prepare to complete uh, this embalming uh, process, uh, this use of, of spices and all of the things uh, that uh, were associated with the uh, burial rite. And then we're told that they, in living in obedience to God, were prepared to observe the Sabbath uh, according uh, to uh, the law. And we, we see this, and, and, and certainly the, the tone is, is somber, it is sad, and, and you know one of the things that we, we try to create in a, in a Good Friday service on Easter is uh, this sense of sobriety of loss, how those early disciples felt as they watched Jesus die and were, were aware that he had been buried and the despair uh, that they were experiencing, even the anger. Uh, because the one in whom they had trusted uh, had died. And this is a reminder that even as God is sovereign, at times He seems silent. And even in our own lives, uh, sometimes we get to these times and seasons in which we despair, we find great difficulties, uh, whether it's in the category of relationships or our own personal health or any number of things that come to us. And we have this sense, God, where are you? Why are you silent? But let me assure you, just as the outcome of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was certain in terms of the resurrection, the outcome for your life and your ultimate well-being is just as certain, even though God may seem silent in that particular season. And so, we are closing chapter 23. Dark, sad, foreboding. This is the end. Chapter 24, the resurrection. There's a number of uh, gospel songs, and I don't know if you call it the refrain, the chorus, the hook, whatever, you know, I'm not a music guy, but uh, it, it's, there'll be a line in there, then came Sunday, or, or then came the morning, and again, that, that, that contrast, that justice position between the awfulness of his death and the hope because of the realities of that first resurrection, Easter Sunday morning. And so, there in verse 1 of chapter 24, first day of the week, on, on Sunday, early in the morning. That's why some uh, churches uh, traditionally have an Easter sunrise service. Uh, that's just to kind of commemorate the, the realities of these faithful women uh, getting up early, making this journey uh, to uh, that tomb. We're told that they went prepared to engage in this process of completing uh, the embalming of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as they were walking, had to be in, in their minds, this is the last thing that we can do to demonstrate our great love for this man, Jesus Christ. We can go and see that even though he died this horrible, shameful death, he can receive an appropriate and a respectful 
burial. And so they, they go with that on their mind, again, a, a testimony to their love and devotion. And, and I can't help but ask, where are the men? Where, where are the disciples? Now, you might argue, well, that was woman's work. And maybe, maybe to some extent it, it was in, in, in that culture. But we can tell by the rest of the story, they weren't absent just because this was a task normally assigned to women. They were absent. They were hiding in their in the upper room or wherever it was that they were hanging out, they were hiding in fear and they were despairing, not at the loss of their friend, they were probably more despairing over the realities that they felt their own lives were in danger. And yet we see the boldness of these women. And so as they arrive at the tomb, and, and another Somerville saying, Heath, uh, uh, they may have gone off a little bit half-cocked in, in, in that they knew what? A stone had been rolled to seal that tomb. Now, I started to say something that, you know what, in, in my discernment and wisdom, I've decided not to say it, so I'll just leave, leave that one alone. But uh, uh, these women probably... Needed, would need, have needed some help to get that stone rolled away. I doubt that they would have been foolish enough to think they could have enlisted uh, the guards that were there, anything like that. Uh, they were simply blinded by their profound devotion to Jesus Christ. And so they go not so much with a plan, but with an attitude that we are going to minister to our Lord. But when they arrive, much to their shock, the stone has been rolled back. Now we read the other gospel accounts, we know how it got uh, rolled back. But all they find is that the passage is open. The stone has been uh, rolled back. And so... Not only is the stone rolled back, we're told in verse, uh, verse 3 that upon entering, they do not find, they, they did find the tomb open, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I think indicative, we went expecting to find a body wrapped in the cloth as, as it had been left two days earlier. But so they go, they enter the tomb. They don't find the body. Verse 4 now. And they were perplexed. Who knows the thoughts that went through their mind? The guards took it. Took him. Uh, maybe, maybe the disciples came, came in for some reason. Maybe Joseph came back. What has happened to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, you would like to think had you super astute, passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have been there, you would have all of a sudden went, Oh! He told me the other day he wasn't going to be here. He told me the other day this was all going to happen. 
And that they are going to kill me, but don't think that's the end, that I'm going to be raised on the third day. You, you would like to think that we, as astute as we are, would have figured it out pretty quickly. It's amazing how oblivious to the obvious, not just men can be. I'll say I'm being real nice. Not just men can be oblivious to the obvious, okay? But they were oblivious to the obvious. They find that the tomb is empty. They are perplexed. And for Luke, two men in dazzling apparel. Other accounts, we know what? That they are angels. And typically, uh, when they are uh, revealed visually, when they are seen, uh, they are stunning, impressive, powerful beings. As you know, uh, I have a, a bit of an axe to grind sometimes. If I happen to be forced to go into stores that sell knickknacks, and among the knickknacks, I find these little chubby cherubs with wings and, you know, bows and arrows and all this silly. Let me tell you something. That ain't no biblical angel. Okay? Uh, there's not much awe-inspired by figures such as that. But when God sends a messenger, He sends a robust, robust representative of a powerful God with a powerful message. And so these impressive men, these angels, they're there and they begin to address what is described in verse 5 as these very frightened women. They actually bow to them. Now, look there in verse 5, that quote. The question that the angels ask. Now, a few years back, one highly well-regarded you know, well member here now, wasn't then, but he highly regarded now, noted that he felt like the love language of this church was sarcasm. Now, I don't know where he gets that. I, I really don't see it. But let me tell you something. It's biblical to be sarcastic. That, that here it is, these angels want to highlight the folly of what they have sought to accomplish and seek to point out what they should have known already by the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? That, do you see the utter foolishness? If you, if you kind of step away from the situation, why would you go look for living people in the graveyard? Right? That's, living people don't live in graveyards. And so they ask this very pointed question. What, what, wait a minute. What, are you, what in the world are you doing here? You're seeking one who is alive, and those who are alive do not reside in tombs. And so, they further inform them in, in verse 6, He's not here. He's not here. We're also told what? That the cloths that he had been wrapped in were laid out in an orderly fashion there on the, the bed, the, the, the ledge that they had placed him on. He's not here. Now again, we could argue that there are multiple explanations for he's not here. But 
what do they do? They give us the correct explanation. He's not here, but... Y'all have heard me talk about there, there's a whole collection of great buts in the Bible. Okay, And this is one of the great buts in the Bible. That conjunction that interrupts and says he was here and he was dead, but he is not here now. He is alive. He has risen from the grave. By the power of God to the glory of the Father. And so, he is not in the tomb as they expected, as they had gone to prepare. He has been raised from the dead. He has ultimately defeated uh, death. And look there at verse 8. And they remembered his words. Now, in my youthful exuberance, sometimes I forget things. Okay? Uh, and and I've, I've told you this many, many times before. If you leave this building today and I'm standing there shaking your head, hands as you tell me, you know, how wonderful and everything, all, all things were. If you tell me, Tim, tomorrow they're going to cut my head off at the hospital, they need to get a good look at it and see what's going wrong, going wrong with my head. I will probably not remember it, okay? Uh, much less of anything of less significance, okay? Don't tell me things Sunday after church. I, I'm, uh, now, you know, you got a little better shot Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but, it, but even there, my recall is not perfect. But here, I believe on God's timetable, according to His set purpose, according to His foreknowledge, He sovereignly ordained that they would live in this dark moment, that they would feel the weight of this loss until all of a sudden they would have that divine, aha! Oh! Oh me! I've got it! And they remembered the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had told them, and He had told them more than once, this is exactly what was going to happen. And so they return, and they go tell the men. Now there's no sense in making a whole lot of comment there. We can just let that stand uh, as it is. Uh, but the men... Uh, whether they don't hear, they don't understand, they don't believe, could be any or all of the above, uh, we know. But they thought of this as, this is foolish. I mean, that's how low they had sank. The women remembered when prompted. The men are still oblivious to the realities of the resurrection. But eventually, and we shouldn't be surprised, Peter decides to go check out the situation, maybe to offer the correct explanation for the empty tomb, maybe to quieten these women, to calm them down, probably thinking, well, you went to the wrong tomb. I know, you know, could be any number of things that Peter thought. But he does get up and go. He's accompanied, we know, according to other gospel accounts, with John. And so Peter goes, and he arrives, verse 12, and he goes, and he looks in, and he sees that things are exactly as the women explained. But he still hasn't figured it out. He's marveling. He's wondering. 
He's perplexed, but he still hasn't quite figured out what has happened. What, what is the ultimate explanation for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Gospel writer Luke presents to us the narrative, the facts. They're unvarnished, they're unenhanced. This is the story. Jesus died. He's buried. He's placed in the tomb. These women go back prepared to minister to the Lord Jesus. They find the tomb open. They find the tomb empty. And they immediately begin to report these realities. But the explanation is found where? Right there in verse 6. The reason he isn't in the tomb is that he has risen. He is risen. He has been raised. Death has been defeated. His sacrifice, His atoning work has been accepted by our Heavenly Father as full payment for our sin and for our salvation. And so let's look finally this morning. We've established the fact of the resurrection. Okay, Let's talk just a minute about the, the meaning. And it is a non-negotiable essential. It is true. It is that which conforms to uh, reality. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, people talk about, well, that's my truth or that's your truth and, and you know, uh, things that are or said to not be and things that are not that, that are not or said to be. And all of that's foolishness. All of that is complete folly. The truth is what conforms to the facts. And the fact is, the historical reality is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, all truth is rooted in fact, in reality, but now, not all truth is of equal importance. I could tell you, and I used this illustration with the kids Tuesday evening, uh, if I told you that this morning I had uh, uh, Cheerios and, and fruit, I could tell you that, but the reality is that's not what I had for breakfast, okay? It, now, that could be my truth. Now, I want you to think that I was all healthy and concerned about my cholesterol and eating my, my oats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the reality is I had a piece of pound cake that a friend brought me yesterday. So, <laughs> but it, was, it was healthy and nourishing, you know, because I believed it to be, you know, as healthy as my Cheerios. So, what is the reality? The facts are I ate a piece of pound cake, Okay? That is the truth. Truth corresponds to historical reality, to historical facts. And so it is a tr the truth, not a truth, the truth, that after being placed in the tomb, the tomb was found to be empty. The reason the tomb was found empty is because Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. There was no body. There was no need. There was, listen, the idea of faking this resurrection uh, by the disciples or, or even... Uh, uh, you know, making the body disappear by, you know, at the hand of his enemies. None of that even begins to make sense. Uh, the disciples had nothing to gain by faking a resurrection. You, you fake things, you engage in a conspiracy uh, to gain advantage for yourself. The only advantage they ever got by claiming that Jesus was raised from dead was persecution. Okay? So that, that, that is foolishness. There were 500 witnesses. Their lives were totally transformed by this event. 
the Lord Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses at one time. No one ever, ever backed down from the testimony that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, we know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus said he was one with the Father. They thought that to be a blasphemous statement, but he is indeed one with the Father, that he always does the Father's will, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the true bread, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, and no one took his life from him, but he laid it down. If he had power to lay it down, he has what? Power to take it up again. He is that one. He is the resurrection and the life. And when he says, and this is a current reality. All authority and power have been entrusted to me. You better know that's true. One of the upshots of the resurrection is very simply this, and I think I said this to the kids the other night. When a dead man walks out of his grave, you better believe what that man says. Is that, is that, that's pretty simple, isn't it? When a dead man walks out of his grave, you better pay attention to what he said. And beyond that, what he did and who he is. Then, Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. The, the Bible is ultimately Christocentric. The Bible points to the realities of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. He is the one born of the virgin. He is the Son of God and Son of Man. He's the fullness of deity and bodily form. He's the radiance of the Father. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings that will return for us one day. And the reality is sin has been atoned for. The resurrection is God's stamp saying, I approve of this message. I approve, I approve of this messenger. That he made atonement. The writer of Hebrews says he sat down. That the blood of bulls and goats was inadequate to take away sin. But Jesus Christ was effective as he took as the ultimate and final and effective high priest that blood into the Holy of Holies and offered it once and for all. Then he sat down. And so the resurrection tells us that death has indeed been defeated. That the sting of death has been removed. And we may live in this life with, with certainty regarding its application to us. In fact, we may live with great hope and great purpose in this life that He is indeed our Lord who will one day return. The resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. It is indeed a past reality, and we do not want to move much beyond that, that reality. We are rooted. All of our eggs are in that basket. That is a reality, but it also points forward to the certain reality, to the truth that one day He will return for us. You see, apart from Christ and His resurrection, all of life is ultimately futile. A doctor told me, uh, one time in terms of neurological diseases, whether it's Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's, in the end, they kind of all look the same. Let me tell you this. Whether it's COVID or diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's or any of the others, in the end, they all look the same. We're all laid out on a slab somewhere with the spirit having departed the body. And it all ends that 
way. And apart from this being true, that this is the reality, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we are, of all men, most miserable. We are still in our sins, and we live right now, in this day, in this time, without hope. That all that's left for us is to one day be placed on that slab. But God has raised our Savior and our Lord. And as much as that is a validation and a vindication of His work, it is also a certain seal that indeed one day He will return for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your testimony to us, for the revelation of what You indeed have done, uh, for the application of this truth uh, in the gospel, the gospel of our salvation, uh, the working of your Spirit uh, in us to cause us to believe. While, while the evidence is unimpeachable, it is unassailable, uh, the, the evidence is there for anyone to see, it is still the work of your Spirit that actually causes us to believe. And we thank you for that. May we live in light of the reality of a resurrected Savior, and the hope that one day He will return for us. And while we do that, while we await, may we live with the quiet confidence that He does indeed rule and reign as the one who has all authority and all power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.